Hello, everyone. Welcome to Three Way Podcast. We have a very special guest today. Uh, I want to welcome Dan Watanabe. Hi. How are you both doing today? Great. Thank you for Great, being thank here. Thank you, Dan. Dan, uh, I want to take uh, this discussion to in a different route. I want to um, talk about how you started your journey instead of just like the curriculum and what position you did, what led up to it. I just want to approach that aspect of how you ended up uh, becoming the development executive and so on. Okay, well, first of all, let me do a little bit of an introduction to myself just in case uh, people don't know who I am because there's no reason they should. Uh, my name's Dan Watanabe, and for about almost 20 years, I was with a company that's now known as Fremantle Media. Uh, you might recognize them from seeing their name on American Idol, America's Got Talent, uh, Price is Right, and Family Feud. I worked a little bit on Family Feud, but my main job with them was a show that they did prior to becoming Fremantle. Uh, I made it through three name changes before they finally successfully pried me out. But the show I worked on for 11 years was Baywatch, and I was the what was known as the current exec on that show, which meant that I looked at the episodes all the way from the time they were one-liners through script on all the revisions there through the dailies, post-production, checking off each individual cut. And then I would go to the final sound mix and take home the finalized cassette to, to, to take a look at it and make sure it looked good on a regular TV. Wow. Also uh, went to a lot of the sales events, such as NAPI. And I didn't really go to Cannes, but uh, American Film Market and, and all of the ones that were relatively local. For, for Baywatch? Uh, both for Baywatch and because the company was a multinational. And in, in the process of doing all of that, I, I would meet with other distributors and see what shows were being done overseas that might be good to bring to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And also to sit in the booth. And if anyone had questions about Baywatch or any of our programming, I was briefed on what some of our upcoming shows were, or I helped develop them, and would talk to potential buyers as to why they should buy the show. Wow. That's really interesting. So uh, let's talk a little about like when you were in high school, for example. What did you always want to be a development exec, or did you? No, no. Okay, first of all, I went to high school in Tokyo. My dad was in Department of Defense, so because he was in Department of Defense, he got transferred when I was in eighth grade or seventh grade, going into eighth grade. And of course, for me, who was a television addict at that time. Uh, it was about the most devastating news you could have because it meant that I was going to be going to a foreign culture, which was actually my base culture, without being able to speak the language. So uh, I was a bit of an outsider on two fronts because as an American, I I didn't quite fit in with them because I was also Japanese by ethnicity. And for the Japanese, I didn't fit in because I couldn't speak the language. Wow. So it was it was an interesting situation. So you you were uh, you were you were born in the U.S. I was born in Washington D.C. and my my family was has actually been in the U.S. since the nineteen uh, since the nineteen teens. They 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 immigrated over as sugarcane farmers during during the early part of the twentieth century and uh, and and all settled in Hawaii. And my parents happened to be the rebels who left the islands, so we became what was known as a Kotonk rather than a Kamaaina. Kamaaina is a native islander, and Kotonk is someone. Oh, they go, they go mainland. 
and that's the name of your film, which uh, oh yeah, I, I when I was going for my master's because after teaching for almost fif over fifteen years, I thought you know what, there's something wrong with this picture that I'm I'm developing classes and courses and I can't teach them because I didn't have a master's degree, and so I got my master's and nice. and yeah, so I made a movie about that. That's a good thing to talk about. But before you began your business, like uh, entertainment industry, um, was there something else you wanted to do? Like you wanted to become a writer or a producer? Yes. My, my biggest dream when I was growing up, I mean, even before I should have known this, I, I'd wanted to be a screenwriter because I was addicted to Money Movie 7 and the Saturday afternoon movies back in the days when they used to run old movies. Yeah. And, and, and so I really wanted to get into writing for that. And uh, that that was my singular focus. And, and I, I know my parents were horrified when they realized that I was inevitably going to probably win that particular battle. No, Dr. Dan, no, uh, <laughs> no businessman, Dan, no, uh, no government agent, Dan. Uh, so so I, when I, I went to USC and when I had my first screenwriting class, which thankfully had a very, very wise teacher, I had this horrible realization that I didn't have any talent. And, and, you know, I mean, that's kind of devastating when you've always wanted to be a writer. So, oh, wow, I can't write. Uh, but he saw that I was very geeky and I was able to come up with movie trivia at the drop of a hat and that I could put stuff together in a weird way. And he goes, well, you know, who cares if you're not a writer? You, you've, you've got the understanding of story and, and how this stuff works. Why aren't you a development exec? And I had not, no idea what that was. Because I, I thought that there were producers because Ken Evans was his name. And Ken had run a production company called Cinem CinemaCon, I think. I, I might have the name wrong. And they'd done things like Man Called Horse and, and, other, and other films. And, and he'd been a development exec and he'd wanted to be a writer. And he, and he saw in me that I had that ability to be just crazy with statistics, even though I didn't know I, I had that. And and he knew that that would work in project creation yeah. because I could I could pull from Hollywood's past in a way that and I didn't realize it at the time, but a lot of executives could not do. So how was USC uh, back then and what what it is today? Uh, like, is it more as well? Has the program changed? The program has almost no similarity between the time I went there and now. Okay. And that's for the better. Uh, at the time I went there, they were still in the horse stables. And the last year was when they built the first set of the Marshall Lucas buildings, which got torn okay. down mo more recently for the for the new almost Parthenon looking structure that's there that's there now. The common element from then now is uh, my film professor and mentor, Drew Casper. He was someone who knew movies really, really well. And and he and I became friends then, and we're we're still close enough to where when he was selling his his, his uh, quadruplex, I helped him sell it. Wow. So, I mean, that was just a couple of years ago. So we're talking about I've known him since he was the age he now still claims to be. <laughs> so uh, I, what I always say to students is that is, is that a, a USC is a great experience as long as you don't expect it to be an automatic entree into the million dollar club. Yeah. I mean, I was critical study, so I had no illusions that, that the greatest danger facing me was that I was going to end up as a book clerk for the rest of my life. And I desperately didn't want that to happen. But because of the, the training that you get in a four year, I, 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 I 
I was willing to do the low end jobs and I was willing to grab on to opportunities like a bulldog and not let go. And that's ultimately what allowed me to become a vice president of a multinational corporation, which I, the reason I say it is because I can't believe it happened. I, I, I mean, Fat Dan, who, who came from Tokyo, not speaking prop, not really speaking English. I mean, I speak English, but not speaking assertively, uh, not looking like a Hollywood person, not being yeah. related to anyone. I'm not supposed to have gotten a vice president uh, position and, and, and had all of that. And I did. So that's why when anyone looks at me and says, oh, yes, but I go, no, no, no. There is no but. There's no reason why you can't achieve a great career. Note I didn't say your dream career, but uh, you can't achieve a career doing what it is that's even better than you thought. Yeah. And that, a lot of people actually say that these days, like they'll say, oh, the industry is so hard where you can, it's almost impossible to break in unless if you're this certain type of person or you, you know, know somebody. This person. But uh, uh, like I didn't start that way. I started doing free work uh, when I first started. It led to getting production assistant freelance gigs and so on. Of course, my my true passion is writing and directing, but um, I basically, basically took it on head on like anything I could get to break into the industry. And would you say you mentioned Ken, uh, was he the one that actually uh, persuaded you or referred you to start in that position? Or Oh, Ken Evans is the one who made me aware the position was available. Okay. So all of a sudden, I had a new goal when I was ready to, uh, to, to graduate. And so what I started doing was I was looking for jobs that led to being a development person. And uh, the, the job that I found was being a reader. And that meant that you read a script and you write a report on it, that uh, one page synopsis of what happens and then one page of comments. And at my peak as a reader, which I do not recommend anyone ever do, don't ever do this. Uh, I was reading more than 30 scripts a week. Wow. And uh, I would say that you should never do more than about 15. If you can, 15 scripts a week, uh, you, you could make a, a pretty good living. Uh, when that, I was when I was um, doing that, I was making, in 1980, my peak year was about 87, right before the Writer's Guild strike. Okay. And, and I was making almost 900 a year being a freelancer, read, I mean, 900 a week being a freelancer reading scripts. That's pretty wow. good, actually, for That's, that time. Definitely. For that time, yeah. You and, figure it's almost three times more than that. So that was, over, that was almost three grand a week. But it yeah. helps to be a um, fast reader and fast typer because... Doing that many scripts is uh, is definitely not a, a lot. Thing. Yeah, it's definitely I, a full time job. I, 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 it was a full time job. I can't. Uh, I mean, I was working other things too, but I can't tell you how much of my career was based on the fact that I could type 120 words a minute on a on a computer, wow. and that's because, quite honestly, I could not handwrite when I was growing up, and so my mom, in desperation, sent me to learn how to type when I was in fifth grade. And, and, and so by the time I was in college, I could type 80 words a minute on, on, on an electric typewriter. Wow. Oh, yes, yes. I was the last year you could go through all four years of college without ever taking a computer class. Wow. It's incredible. That is actually. That's really impressive. <laughs> no, it makes you feel really, really old, i got to tell you. <laughs> that's okay. That's Actually, being in college right now, uh, before I would look at it and say, wow, these, these kids in the class are so young. I'm the oldest guy. Now I don't even care. I'm just in it to finish my courses and like move on. 
And uh, one of the hardest things today is, uh, and you could disagree if you want, um, the studios, like working for the studios, I couldn't even land an interview without, uh, even with the referrals, I feel like you have to have a bachelor's degree to get in, to get your foot in the door in the studios. Uh, yes, that, that is a problem, but it was always a problem. Where the, the important thing for anyone wanting to get into the business today is, yes, older people will say it's worse than it's ever been. That is something old people do. They, they say it because the industry is always changing. And that means that whatever they're used to is changing at a point where they have so many expenses they can't keep up mm -hmm. if the industry changes. That also means that the younger you are, and yet by younger I don't mean chronologically, I mean in terms of the time that, that you've tried to be in the industry, that the younger you are in the industry, the more opportunity there is. Do you know that there's over 300,000 jobs in a combination of entertainment directly related careers and entertainment uh, entertainment adjacent careers? For example, if you learn how to edit or you learn how to do Photoshop or something like that, even if you're not in the industry, there's a ton of jobs that require that. There's almost 180,000 jobs within just entertainment. Wow. So uh, compare that to when I got into entertainment, which uh, was admittedly a boom time because home video had just come out and the foreign market had opened up. So there were about 50,000 jobs then, and everyone was amazed because it had grown from, from just about 30 or 40,000 10 years before. So look at how many more there are now. When you see the end credits of a movie, as you're, and, and it's important to sit there and look at the end credits yeah. just to get a sense of how many names are there. Every one of those is a high-paying job. Wow. And it's never ending. Like I remember uh, watching Deadpool and seeing all these names. It was like Canada, U.S., other countries. and like there's So if they have their credits people. and they're like employees, it's uh, really good paying. Most of those jobs pay very well. You've got to think that that uh, your average film production, a low budget now, and this, I it's hard for me to get my head around, is about thirty to fifty million dollars. That's a lot of jobs. Now there are certain sectors of the industry that are that are doing much better now than than in the past, and one of those is post. If you're if you're going for a job in post you have a lot more career safety for now than if you're in some of the front office jobs or any of that. The The challenge that you're having is very specific to the industry at this moment because what's happened is that the, the industry is now obsessed with making sure that people have had agency experience first, which is shocking to me because when when I was an executive, the agents are your enemy, and they're supposed to be. Their job is to get the most money possible for clients. Your job is to make the best movie or TV show. That is not a compatible job. So so the fact that agencies are now placing executives means that they're that that they're not based in ultimately trying for the best creativity they're looking for the best deal it's a mindset and looking for the best deal means that you're going to be looking for an arrangement of elements stars writer director cinematographer that you feel you can use when you're selling the film as opposed to making sure the movie is great so people will want to buy it it's kind of a backwards look at it and that's why in the past, 
having the agencies and the producers at odds was better for creativity because fighting and having to compromise means you're forced to be creative. If all you're doing is looking at the bottom line and trying to massage things toward that, you're probably going to make decisions that are not good for the creativity. And ultimately, you end up with a disappointment like Last Jedi, which led to Han Solo being a disaster. Wow. Interesting. Do you feel like, uh, um, I, well, just my experience, and uh, I'm, I'm an upcoming actor, um, for looking for agents, like most of the agents today actually are looking for clients who are established and have credits is in that have a following in a sense so like it's so hard to find an agent that's like willing to sit and work with you to develop you and uh, which i was able to sign someone recently but uh just going out putting yourself out there it's like difficult like that's part of the problem with the agencies having so much power because what's happened is that because you don't have as much entrepreneurship. You don't have as many mid-sized and small agencies, which is where you develop talent. You have the big agencies looking for the people who give them plausible deniability. What do I mean by that? That if you hire someone or you, or you say yes to someone, that they have enough credentials on paper where you're not looked at as being a screw-up because they ultimately didn't work out. Whereas if you're entrepreneurial, you'll do something like go to all of the small independent theaters in North Hollywood and watch every single play. You'll force yourself to go to showcases, actor showcases. You'll you'll try to sit in on certain high-end acting classes and see if there's someone who's that fire in a bottle that that you you can build into a star. You always need new stars. And look at what's happened. Our most consistent stars, and I hate to say this, is look at Tom Cruise. He's my age. He's actually a year older than me, and and he's still our our number one star. Who is the twenty year old, the twenty to thirty two year old male who can open a bad movie? I can't think of one. Who is the eighteen to to twenty to thirty year old female who can open a weak movie? Jennifer Lawrence looked like she could be, but no, she wasn't able to open not was was a passenger and and mother she couldn't open either of those movies now mother was a daring attempt by that was her. a horror movie right? yes it was an art movie it's not really a horror movie it's an art movie uh but but when when she did that she wasn't it, it was a great strategic move for her that didn't work and unfortunately coming on the heels of passenger now she's looked at as being maybe not strong box office so she needs to have a hit. Otherwise, people are going to start looking for someone else. And that's where not having enough low-budget films, not having enough mid-level agencies is a problem. Because a, a mid-level level agent who doesn't have a lot of clients would take someone like Jennifer Lawrence and say, okay, we're going to have to take a step back here. You're going to have to do a couple of guest guest roles in bigger pictures. You're going to maybe have to do a little bit more of the talk show circuit. You're going to have to shut up about politics and, and, and all of that because you're going to turn off audiences and you don't want that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and then allow her to have a smaller part in a movie where she can shine. Uh, uh, if, if anything, if she had any knowledge of Hollywood's past, 
she should look at someone like Joan Crawford, who in 1939 was considered box office poison to the point where MGM was about to drop her. So she was willing to take a backward step and be a, a supporting player in The Woman, which she almost walked away with. And all of a sudden her career was back on track. That's, that's the kind of career strategy that I don't think the bigger agents are willing to do. They say, okay, you're not working, next. And, and, and so think of the people who were big stars 10 years ago and aren't around. Yeah. There's a lot of those too. Yep. So, Dan, uh, what do you currently do uh, Well, after being a development exec? Uh, like what aspect of that do you utilize? Of course, you're in the film department uh, and the media arts department, but uh, what do you currently do today? I run a grant that that supposedly that that that's goal is to help people move from a community college into a four year and from a four year into a job within the industry, and so what we're trying to do is to make sure that students through a combination of of the the regular curriculum which we're always revising we have a bunch of experts who will go around and go to advisory meetings at the various schools. And, and, and talk to make sure that what's being taught is in line with what industry And is wants. this college or high school? It's both. Oh, I see. We, we actually work with the high schools a lot more because uh, when, when people decide they want to be in an art, and I know this from my own past, that there, there isn't a lot of real practicality, so it's scary. And especially because within the community college system, you don't have – a Beverly Hills mindset. You don't have a 310 area code mindset where, where okay, I can spend five years trying to get my life together because mom and dad will support me through that. No, we have to get a job right away. So what we try to do is is show how you can take some take an entry level job and work your way up faster rather than slower because. Yeah, you might think I went I spent all this money to go to college and I'm making coffee. You're not making coffee forever. What they're doing is they're watching you and they're seeing how you handle everyday stuff. If you can't handle making coffee, answering the phone, uh and 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 doing other uh, other kind of uh, minuscule minuscule tasks, tasks oh, yeah. why should they trust you to say yes to a 40 million dollar movie? So and, – and, and they get a chance to see your personality. So are you easy to work with? Are you a genius who happens to be an asshole and <laughs> that no one wants to work with? So and, – and there's a problem because you have the myth of Steve Jobs, that Steve Jobs was an insane human being who had, was abusive to other people, uh, didn't like to take a bath, and, 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 and was crazy but a genius. And you have too many people who are not at his level who think they can behave that way. And what we try to do is make sure that no one goes out there with, with, some, with a behavioral pattern that will block their ability to express their talent. That's, that's very important. Yeah, it's very important. Like That's one thing I realized when I first started. Uh, you cannot have an ego. You have to be humble. Like you said, you have to pay your dues. If that's making coffees or doing certain tasks, you have to do it. And that's one way you get people to be interested in, uh, like, I guess, believe that you're capable of doing that job. But uh, one thing I want to ask you is uh, there are different routes. Like, I know when I first started off as a production assistant, 
I would get hired uh, for commercial companies and I kind of never seen a ladder where you could actually grow in that sense. It's good as far as experience to find another work. But um, today I just I realized like that ladder mainly exists in studio systems. No, it doesn't. It, it Okay, we've had a little bit of a problem because for longer than it should have lasted, we've been in a very corporatist cycle. Normally, the industry goes through a corporatist and independent film cycle every 20 years. They'll go through where you have the corporations come together and then they break apart and it's a lot of independence and they come together. And we've been in a corporatist cycle for almost 25 years now. And where the problem with that is, is that you're without having the independence out there, you're not challenging corporate think. So you're not having an appreciation for little movies that come out of nowhere, like uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which is a problematic movie, is making all sorts of money right now. And you have a lot of Hollywood saying, oh, that's because we're proving that diversity works. No, you're not. You're proving that movies that know their topic to the smallest detail and, and, and have an emotional basis work my big fat greek wedding was similar yeah you yeah. Uh, um uh three billboards is similar these are not movies that look good on a powerpoint presentation yet an audience loves them because it connects with them emotionally oh yeah it's box office it was a box office hit actually yes which is which is why when you look at something like three billboards or crazy rich asians you're looking at it and going got it this is a sign that there's a major niche that is not being filled and the reason i say that is that crazy rich asians is good it's it's good it's 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 like uh, a 30 screwball comedy it 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 should have been it cost 30 million it should it should make 70 million in theatrical and then in the u.s and then through the rest of the world it'll eventually cross 100 and everyone's happy yeah. no it's made way more than that and the reason it's made way more than that is because audiences are going to see it and are so starved for that type of content that they're loving it. Yeah, because when is the last time like a uh, that type of movie came out? It's been years, but I would say a solid Asian movie. Unfortunately, you have stuff like Memoirs of a Geisha or Joy Luck Club or or other things that are movies where you're not. You're not meant to enjoy them. You're meant to feel good about yourself because you actually sat through it. It's like watching Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. That 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 <laughs> it, it's a good movie, but how many people, uh, after listening to your podcast, are going to run to Netflix because they just can't stand the thought of not of, of spending another day without watching Lawrence of Arabia again? Can I say none? I I love that motorcycle scene mm-hmm. when he's just riding and riding and riding. It's yeah, but, but, right. but Lawrence of Arabia is a movie that you see more because you feel you have to rather than seeing because you want to. And uh, it was the same with things like uh, Le Miserable or a, a, a lot of these pictures uh, uh, that, that have an important message. They're, they're, they might be important, but they're not fun. And ultimately, you're, the goal of every movie is to get people to come back and see a movie next week. So what do you recommend for like uh, new student filmmakers that actually want to go and make a, a real indie indie film? Uh, what steps or what measures? Or is it just uh, 
because one conclusion I came up with is you have to be producing content. Like sitting and planning is a good thing, but mm-hmm. you, you can't always just sit and wait for someone to knock on your door. You have to actually That's for sure. make movies yourself and do stuff. And of course, your beginning movies is not going to be great. Uh, it's actually not going to be great at 100%. But what do you say to these guys who are starting up? Like what steps to take coming from a former development exec? Okay. What actors do is act, what writers do is write, what directors do is direct, what producers do is produce, whether they get paid or not. If you have someone who is waiting for the, someone to call them and isn't out there doing it, uh, you have someone who's not going to do it, most likely, uh, because that, that miracle angel doesn't really exist. Yeah. So, so the, the trick is to always work. Like Even if you're doing production assistant work, uh, what you might do on the weekends is get together with your friends and shoot something for a YouTube or something like that. It, it, who cares if no one watches it? It's, it's that you're building your craft. You're getting better. And every and eventually pro, uh, preparation will meet opportunity and you'll have luck. So so I, I mean, a, a couple of people that I knew way back in the day, uh, he, he was a production assistant for a, a, a big a big independent film company okay and uh and what he would do is he would pick up the equipment on friday so they would have it on set on monday and so that meant on the weekends because the company liked him they would shoot their own film on it they'd have to buy their own film and all that but they would shoot their own film with professional equipment with professional equipment and you know what's uh like you have all the schools like new york film school Mm -hmm. or uh what's the one next to warner brothers is it la la film school yes and that's the same deal. They basically get to shoot on their lot, use all this uh, expensive equipment and stuff, which is great. But uh, it's not cheap. Those schools are like fifty to hundred grand. Them. I would not say go to them. Um, if you're going there with no intention of ever teaching in the future, fine. Uh, and I know that nobody thinks that they're going to end up a teacher, but I hate to say it, it's a great retirement job. But uh, when you go to one of those schools, the degree that you get. And this is getting into academic administrivia, is is not necessarily a degree that you can use when you want to become an instructor of this stuff. Okay. You want to have a degree from the right kind of school, which includes the valleys, which includes the uh, the, the the Chapmans and the USCs and the UCLA's and the Cal and and the uh, CalArts and the CSUNs, but. You want to have that type of degree because that's a legitimate degree that is useful forever, and it's uh, and it's not any more expensive. Yeah. The, uh, yes. The problem with all of these programs is that they're impacted; that they have limits on enrollment, and uh, they're also expensive. Uh, I hate to say it, do not take on immense debt because immense debt will block your career faster than than. Uh, even not being talented, because you can learn how to how, how to do certain admin type skills, like being a development person, that that doesn't require the talent that 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 being a writer or an above the line writer, actor, director person needs. Yeah, just like a basic understanding of kind of uh-huh. stories, film. Yes. But what I would do if, as an independent filmmaker is, you have to cut the BS. And when I say cut the BS, that is this idea that if you have a film that wins a festival, that you're going to suddenly have the golden ticket. You might, 
But a film festival, a film that you make for a film festival, should not be looked at as something that you want to have win. Just the fact you got it in is enough. Because the reason you go to the film festival is to meet the other people there. And the fact that you have a film is, is a nice calling card. But it isn't more than that. And uh, I know that when you get into entertainment, no one likes to hear, well, you're going to be on the ground hustling. Because if you wanted to do that, you'd get into real estate, right? But, <laughs> but no, you, 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 you still have to. You go to the film market. You don't pitch your film there. You, you get people's cards. And you uh, hope to meet them afterwards. And, and that's how a film festival works. It doesn't matter what wins. What matters is the people you met there. And, and, and you'd be surprised at how many people that you can meet socially like that who will open a door for you that you didn't even realize was there. Wow. That's incredible. Like, um, yeah, so it's basically a good way to network and meet other people in the business. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was first starting off, uh, even a, just a, as a student filmmaker, you have this ego. Well, it's not an ego, but it's this uh, thing in you where you're trying to do every role yourself, and you can't do that. You have to work with other people. Like you said, you have a writer, you have actors, and you have a director. It's more of a collaboration effort than just trying to do it yourself. I remember my first one-on-one -on -one short, and uh, I actually filmed it at Grand High School. <laughs> I remember editing Sleeping it. Sleeping Puppet? Yeah, I remember editing it, and... <laughs> I had a lamp on top of the locker mm -hmm. and like errors like that is going to happen. You need the crew. You need that extra help. You need the people that are uh, more educated in those uh, specific departments to do their part. You can't carry all those roles yourself. Absolutely. One of the, the tricks about being a director, and they don't teach this, is that 90% of your job is administrative. It's getting the right people to do the right thing, not to control everything, but to but to learn who you can trust. The reason Clint Eastwood has had such a successful career since Play Misty for me is that he's used a lot of the same people. They wow. work together. They trust each other. Uh, he doesn't get in their way. He, he's not abusive to them. He's he 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 trusts them to do their job. And when you're that way, you're always going to have a much calmer set. The goal of every movie is to get to make another one, not to make a masterpiece and disappear. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, as like as an executive when it comes to actors? Like, how do you guys uh, how do you look at look at actors? Okay, as as a development exec, uh, the the way that I usually interacted with the actors mm -hmm. is that after the casting directors had made their decisions. Mm -hmm. I, w I would go in with whoever the producers were and, and I would be a fly on the wall more or less in the casting sessions and I would watch what they're looking for. And the important thing about uh, about looking at actors from that perspective is to be aware of where the actor falls in the hierarchy. And uh, And one of the big issues is that if you have, let's say, a lead who's not necessarily that good that's going to mean that you can't have anyone better than them because then that person will steal the movie. And if they steal the movie, no one went to see it to see the support. They went to see the lead. So you might have created an accident. Uh, uh, 
Crazy Rich Asians does that. Michelle Yeoh, after all her years in Jackie Chan movies and Chinese martial arts movies, is force of nature. And Candace Wu is very good, but she, as a lead, does not have the force of power of of Michelle Yeoh. So every scene that Michelle Yeoh is in, she owns. And that means that no matter what, the film ultimately is not as successful. And and that that quality is ineffable. You 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 only know it when you see it. When you looked at Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, which is a bad movie, but it's made good because Julia Roberts is really good in it. She keeps up with Richard Gere, who had been a class A scene stealer since he was on Broadway as a right. hoofer. Yeah. So so she was able to hold her own against it, even if she's playing a victimized and passive part. And and she even did better than Laura Sangiacoma, who is another class A scene stealer. So you need someone who is capable of that. And they don't necessarily have to be someone who's ripping up the scenery and eating it. It, it can be someone who is more subtle. Uh, and 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 that's that's the trick. You you have to look for uh, someone who's compatible with your lead, but won't threaten them. Dan, have you uh, when you said casting, have you sat sat in on a lot of the casting sessions yes. you guys did? Mm -hmm. Is there any uh, particular thing that you guys look for, or maybe like a pet peeve that maybe turns you off about the actor, or something that they do that you could I guess help them out to to not do that or to, to do it and get noticed. Some of this is inadvertent. As an actor, please be prepared. Because there's so many times when an actor will come in. And I, I know that for a serious actor, it, it's almost impossible to believe. Because you know how hard it is to get into auditions. But when you're looking at a bunch of auditions, the number of people who come in and who you can tell haven't really thought through their sides. Now, it's, a cold reading is different because a cold reading, you're looking for the person's personality to pop. Mm. But when you're doing a, a, a regular reading, a, a actors need, need to come in a, a little bit more prepared. And, and I would say if you have a general casting session and you have about, let's say, 30 people show up, of that 30 people, you will have about 10 of them who are absolutely spot on. And even if they're holding the paper in front of them, you know they actually know the words. You know, because, and a trick for an actor, now this might not be true anymore, because I haven't done this yeah. regularly in a long time. But usually if a casting director asks you to try it a different way, that means that they're impressed with you about something. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're impressed with you for this role. They might actually say, oh, this is interesting. Let's see how versatile they are because there might be something else for them. Down the line. Down yeah. the line. And they're making a mental note. Their assistants understand the cueing that's going on. It's almost like, you know, when you when you go to one of these magician shows and someone's a mind reader and you have no idea how they could know these facts. Mm -hmm. And you realize later it's because the person who's playing the piano is giving them huge hints on what they should be thinking. Okay. Um it's, it's, it's the same. It's some of the things they say. Can you try the reading this way? Can you try it with this other thing? Uh, uh, an assistant casting person going, okay, they're thinking of them for this other role. Wow. That's interesting. So, so, it's, it's, so, so when, when you're preparing for the part, also think of what some of the variations could be and what, what 
what you as an actor bring to it. Um, a challenge that I've seen, and this might just be my bias, because after all, I grew up in the 70s where you had a very different kind of actor. Mm -hmm. um, when, when, you're, when, 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 I, when I go in there a lot, I, I see actors who are much more worried about making sure they have a six-pack uh, abs or if you're an actress that you're a size zero loose, then, then what's your personality? What about you sparkles? And that's a mistake. The, the, the physical attributes are tertiary. They're temporary. And you, you have to have something else. And, and it's the personality that sells. And I know people say, oh, no, it's the look. Look at this actor. No. Uh, the, the, the actors who are known primarily for their looks don't last unless they have something special behind it. Like uh, going back again, if you look at Elizabeth Taylor, who is one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood, mm -hmm. couldn't really act that well. But there was an anger behind her, even in her early roles, that you get the feeling that she knew she was good looking and knew that no one was ever going to tell her the truth because of it. And that anger subtly comes through and makes even a performance where she's not doing the line reading right be completely correct. Hmm. So as an actor, what are you bringing? So when you as an actor are looking at a part, what are you thinking of in the role? That's a good question. Um, wow. <laughs> oh, I, the first thing I could think of is like uh, – the audition I was uh, I'm prepping for it's only a sentence of what I say but uh, I, I, the main thing from uh, the beginning what I was thinking is to do something to stand out and how I do it differently for example I'll give you this um, example I went to audition is for a cooking uh, commercial and uh, basically I'm looking at a photo it's I'm, I'm working my ass off I'm chopping mm -hmm. up stuff I'm cooking stuff and then there's this photo where I have to really concentrate on, mm -hmm. and uh, it kind of uh, reminds me of my family, and I get back into it because you're just working hard, and now you're kind of energetic after looking at that photo. So what I did that was different um, that I didn't see anyone else, well, I didn't see what anyone did, but I actually just uh, kissed my hand and put it on the photo and just tried something different to kind of stand out. Because if, if you have the producers uh, that are watching the self-tapes, uh, and everyone's doing the same thing. You kind of have to stand it's, out. It's in a subtle, sense. but like it's big enough to where it sh it doesn't make you, I guess, stand out, and just shows the type of person you are. Yeah, the this is old school acting. Uh, it, it's not at all what you would learn at Playhouse West or something. But the the old school way is what in the part, no matter how small, is you. So what's the line that you, you have to say? Oh, uh, whose car is this is the new thing I'm going to say. Okay, whose car is this? Now, it's a throwaway line, right? Uh, so are you playing a valet parker or, or what? It's basically a, a car rush attendant. Mm -hmm. The ca car comes out of the tunnel, and then the person is not in the car. So you're like – you give this confused look, and you're like throw your hands up in the air and say, whose car is this? Because you're – All right. Um, how is – an Armenian saying that line different from a Chinese person. You're probably screaming. <laughs> look at look at uh, most of the cinemas. Like I don't know. Uh, you're guaranteed. To How off. would you do it? Like like if you're in that position and somebody's well, car's I, left there, nobody. Well, you're definitely confused at first. Uh, you're confused because uh, the person was in the car and 
happens not to be in the car anymore. So you're looking around, you're confused, um, and then anger because then you're responsible for this car because you don't know where the person went, and it's on your shift. So it just adds up. So that line definitely becomes uh, something that you. So it's not really just one out. line. It's a whole bunch of things it's, happening. It's definitely in that stuff moment. that leads to that yeah. line, and I feel like. Uh, yeah, it's going to change. You're definitely going to be angry when you're saying that line. It's it's also who the character is, everything that led up to it. Now, this is something that never shows up on the screen, but you'll notice that the best actors, the reason they can bring something different to it is because they're thinking of the details of who this person was that led them up to that line. So is this person who's who's saying that someone who's doing this job because they lost their big job and they're having to do this as as part of their mick job that come that while they're waiting for their next thing to come out is the person saying it uh because this is the only job they've ever had and they're actually pretty happy with it because their dad owns the uh the the the, 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 car, the car wash yeah. Yeah. so so each of those will have ever so slightly different difference yeah a, a, a reading to it and and that's that's the kind of performing that I'm, 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 I'm not I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not seeing that and again I'm, I'm I might be totally ignorant on this but I'm not seeing that as part of the generalized form of scene breakdown anymore yeah but that definitely I feel like would help help add like a little backstory to just one little sentence being said like mm -hmm. they'd be like okay this guy is coming from like there's a whole another story behind this one attendant. Like it might be just a very small part, but like, what's really going on in his and life? Initially, what I developed in my head was uh, like, okay, uh, I'm the main attendant, so I have I already have a problem with the manager, and like I have all this stuff on my plate, and now I have a car who's the car that's abandoned, so you gotta answer for that. Off. And that's the initial uh, um, vibe I was feeling when I read the script, and so. Uh, that line, of course, uh, the confusion look and stare and your reaction, your gestures, and then that line will come off as slightly aggressive, not in a sense mm -hmm. where you're just screaming, but you could definitely tell uh, tell the emotions from the line. Well, as a anecdote for going way back in history, on the original pilot of the Jeffersons, Marla Gibbs had a, a one-liner. She was a, a guest one-liner. And her role was to come on after the families have met and, and be all that. She looks around at, uh, at, at George and Louise Jefferson, rich, newly, newly rich couple. She looks at uh, the, the, uh, their neighbors and their son's fiancé, who are a black and white couple. And she looks at them and she goes, you live here, you live here. And she goes, how come we overcame and nobody told me? Now, that line got a huge laugh, and it also got her the rest of her career. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and she went from that one line to being a regular on the show. And from that, she got room – I can't remember the, the other show she did. But, but it's all because she was able to bring her years of training and her understanding of what civil rights were like because this was – the Jeffersons was what, six – eight uh, – yeah, six years out of uh, UNRWA, of the Civil Rights Act. So it was all still very new. And, and, and so she was bringing with it a history behind what she was saying. It wasn't just her trying to capture 
a surface moment. She was she was bringing up all sorts of stuff, and and it worked. And as someone who's not Western European, what you're what 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 you both are bringing is you're bringing a different prehistory, a different style of viewing the world. And that difference is what gives you an advantage over everyone else in the room. Everyone in the room is going to bring their own story, but but you're bringing in the the whole issue of of being part of the Armenian community, being part of a community that that has a certain ability to to stick together and familial relations and all of that that are different from your average Westerner. So there's different life expectations. So when you do a role, that's going to come through whether you want it to or not, and and you want it to, because that's what's going to make you memorable. Okay. Because you will have that 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 history behind it. Yeah, that makes really a lot of sense. So how often then would you say like uh, getting a script, uh, well, as a development executive, getting a script and uh, completely uh, 180 changing the script, how often does that happen? All the time. And this is where, as a writer, it can be frustrating because, unfortunately, a script, unlike a play, is not the final act of creation. And because movies are so much more expensive than than even plays, outside of the big Broadway shows or something like that, so so there's a lot of other things that have to be considered. So when the a, a good script comes through, not only does it have to be great and 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 compelling and all of that, but unfortunately in some cases and very fortunately in others, it has to fit a business plan. So going back to Pretty Woman, the original script for that was a black comedy, and it was about two users who uh, who, who ultimately scam each other. At the end of it, Richard Gere, uh, who thinks that he's fooled her into thinking they're all romantic, just kicks her out of the, the cab and says, ha ha, I fooled you. And then as his cab uh, or as his limousine was driving away, you see that she's stolen his wallet. So so it, it was a very cynical black comedy that would have been great for an Island Alive or a Vestron or a DEG, which were big companies at that time. Once Disney got involved, they said, no, this has to now be a Cinderella story. So the cynicism was completely written out of it. Uh, a, a movie that tried the same thing but failed was Up Close and Personal, one of the last Robert Redford movies that even had a hint of what his former star power was. And that had been based on the Jessica Savage story, who's who's a reporter who ended up drowning in a freak accident. But but she was a mess in her personal life. And the original script was based on her. But once you had come on Dan, I think it's Meg Ryan and 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 Redford cast in it, all of a sudden it had to be softer. And in the process of making it softer, it became silly. It 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 didn't maintain what was good about the original John Gregory Dunn script. But Dunn, who, with his wife Joan Didion, had, had written tons of scripts that were always savaged. I mean, they wrote The Barbara Streisand of Stars Born. Trust me, I'm sure they wanted to take their names off of it. But but they also knew that the paycheck would clear. So so th- there, there, there are certain compromises. You go, okay, we got Barbara Streisand, oh well. No. Now there's a new Star is Born now with uh, yep. Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's based, I guess, kind of similar stories? 
Star is Born has been made five times. The first version was What Price Hollywood in the early 30s. Then you had the first Star is Born with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Then you had in 1954 this incredibly long but nonetheless show-stopping Judy Garland version, which uh, has a much bigger reputation than when you actually watch the movie, you think, okay, this is really long. Uh, in 76, Barbara Streisand did her own remake, which was widely hated. And in fact, Barbara Streisand's career became separated at that point. You have the people who really liked her prior to A Star is Born, and you have the people who liked her from A Star is Born forward. Mm, and very seldom do you have those two camps being the same person. And so this version of it could easily be the best version. There's there's no reason for it not to be because while the previous versions all had their great moments, at the end of the day, all of them are fatally flawed as movies as a whole. Oh. I mean, the, the very fact that the Janet Gaynor movie, it's called A Star is Born, it's her last movie. Uh, the Judy Garland one, she was way past her prime at that point. And yes, it, it reignited her career and made her a gay icon, but it really... It, 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 as, 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 a, as a, a piece of art that's separated from its history, it's not that good. Uh, the Barbara Streisand one, she's show-stopping in it and irritating beyond belief. So, so you have so Lady Gaga's version, just by not having the minuses that the previous versions had, could be the best. Uh, I am kind of hesitant about it. Because as I look at the previews, they seem to have taken too much from the Barbara Streisand version and maybe not enough from the previous versions. Okay. Well, then I have a final question for you, actually. Um, as an upcoming uh, entertainment person, um, how much do you say? Like, uh, for example, I'm a writer, but in, if you happen to get another job, how much do you say? Do you talk about it or you don't uh, talk about it? Do you mention that you're, uh, you have other attentions or like you your career plans? Do you say that? Do you feel like it would affect your jo current job and uh, affect your growth in the line it, of work? It depends. Say? It depends. Most of the time I would wait to see if it's safe to do it. I would not lead with it. But let's say that you take a mic job and you know that this is not a job that anyone has as their dream career job. For example, let's say you're working at Starbucks or you're driving Uber. Nobody thinks that, that that's the only thing you want to do in your life. And if you have someone who asks you, yeah, say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, I also write, but this is what's paying my bills right now. That's why I don't label myself a writer right away. And, and if they ask more, then you give them more. Um, but I would not hesitate once you're asked to say, yes, um, and let's be honest, no matter what your job in L.A. is, everyone knows that secretly you probably have <laughs> either a script in your desk or you're going to acting classes at night. <laughs> and you true. might have lied to them and said, oh, I'm taking the acting class because I'm always meeting with the public and I want to make sure that I put my best foot forward. They're going to say, no, you're not. They know. It's okay. But if you, you're at an interview and obviously you don't mention because then they're going to think that you're not going to yeah. give all your effort. For not even that. If you say you're an actor, you, then they're going to know you're going to be missing time or days yeah. to do auditions. No, I, 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 again, if, if they ask you, you have to be honest. 
and you say, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've done acting in the past. It was an ambition, and uh, I might go back to it at some point. But right now, I'm dedicated to to doing this job because I, I needed to have a little bit more life experience. You come up with something that sounds plausible, and they might say to you, oh, but you look over thirty, and you say, yeah, so what? Um, I, I need to have a different kind of life experience. I've been entrepreneurial. Now I want to try the corporate world. Neat. No, for sure. There's always an answer. <laughs> and and again, uh, what what uh, the most important thing is that uh, as long as you're willing to allow your career to happen the way it should, and you don't jump in and 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 try to force something into a direction that is not comfortable in going. Of all of the people who graduated with me in 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 the late eighties, mid eighties, every one of them who stuck with pursuing their career, every one of them ended up with a great job. Huh? Now, almost none of them ended up doing what they thought they were going to do, but they ended up in the job that is more satisfying than their dream job. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think eventually you got to do whatever makes you happy, but uh, if you're if that's the industry you're going for, I say put your 100% effort in it. Uh -huh. I mean, like... I've been going after acting for a long time, and I feel like now I'm starting to see a little bit more uh, return, I guess you could say. But uh, whatever it may be, whether it's – that's I told Autumn the same thing. I'm like, I know he enjoys writing, but I'm like, maybe you should try the acting side of it. Because he, he, he got a couple, like attention. Like, he booked a commercial. He had a couple of auditions. And I'm like, callbacks, yeah. Actually, yeah, the he's actually had more than I have, mm -hmm. which is – Think John Houseman. Who was John Houseman in the in, in the 30s and 40s? He was one of the top studio producers. What did he do for the last 10 years of his life? He won an Academy Award as Best Supporting Actor for being in The Paper Chase, and he became an actor later. And and it, he just followed where his career led. Yeah, it's interesting. You got to just keep at it. Uh -huh. You got to just keep at it. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for uh, being our guest today. Thank and, you, Dan. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure having you. Okay. Well, uh, I look forward to hearing your next episode. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you.